Sideways last week, but I didn't realize it. Anyway, that's a big deal. A couple of things for you. So you can see Life, Life, Life Issues Recovery Walk is uh, coming up in September. I don't think I have a date X on there, but it's, uh, I believe it's September 3rd, the weekend of September 3rd. And then uh, right after that, a couple of weeks after that, anyway, is the Bible Conference, which is September 19th. So, um, and uh, so September 3rd, I think, is a Friday night. September 13th is a Sunday, or 19th is a Sunday. Uh, but Bible conferences are important for this to this church, and so I hope everybody can participate in it. There'll be more information coming out. Um, I'm pretty excited for a couple of our speakers, and you will be too when you see who they are. Um, so I want you to encourage you to come, especially Sunday night. If you can't come any other time, be here Sunday night, please. It'll be a really awesome experience. Um, and, um, and so uh, we're making uh, anywhere between five, four and 7,000 Bibles. I'm not sure exactly how many Spanish Bibles we'll get, uh, but I'm looking to get 1,000 for Jamaica again. Every year we do Jamaican Bibles, so we need, it's time for us to do some, some English Bibles in Jamaica for Jamaica again. And the Spanish Bibles are gonna end up in Venezuela which is a country that desperately needs the gospel and needs the truth. So uh, we're going to ship them down to a missionary. He actually lives in uh, Tennessee, I believe. Uh, but his, uh, his ministry, Wings Bearing Precious Seed, started out, they would fly Bibles uh, to countries. They would, you know, charter, not a charter, but a private plane, and the guy would load them all up and he would take them. But they don't do that anymore because of the situations that are around. Um, but they do ship them, so he's gonna, we're going to give them to him, and he's going to ship them to Venezuela, get them in there. Um, for lack of a better name, the man meeting is uh, the man meeting. That's what Brian calls it, the man meeting. Men's breakfast, is that what it is? Well, it, it is, but it's an extended breakfast. It's an extended meeting. The breakfast is at 8.30, I think, yeah, but then it goes until 12 or noon, and there's no lunch, so it's just come have breakfast, and then Brian's going to challenge the men to be men, is basically what it is. So, I uh, hope you can all, men, make it. Um, so that's uh, the, I had 7.17, but I think it's actually 8.17, August 17th. That would have been when the men's conference, this is actually a replacement for the men's conference, which we're not doing this year. Um, the men's conference would have been that weekend, the 17th, 16th, 17th time frame. Uh, but we, we're not doing a conference this year. We're just going to do this four-hour uh, concentrated event. And uh, so you can, uh, it would help the people who are making breakfast if the men would sign up online. Just like, you know, it doesn't cost anything, just sign up so we get a head count on how many people that come, so how many breakfasts to to prepare, uh, how much breakfast to prepare. Um, as far as praying for people in our class, and pray for uh, Dwayne Arney. I can't flip over on my phone to look at the track or the text that he sent me a couple days ago, but he had his MRI uh, on his head. Uh, he had a lot of pain in his head, and they were worried about what that was. As it turns out, he had a sinus infection, and they're treating his sinus infection with antibiotics, so that'll take care of that problem. Um, the other things that are going on with him, um, I don't remember now what the text said. 
the key, yeah, the chemo drugs are working, but slowly. So the chemo is regressing. I don't know if I should use the word regressing, but it's it's slowing. Things are things are in a little bit of a positive view on that side. Uh, he's still got some other things going on, of course, and he's got other tests that he's got to do to keep track of all of these things. And so, please keep uh, going in, in prayer uh, and sharing Vulcan and the Vulcans. I mean, they wanted to be here. They were, you know, for almost a year they weren't able to come. Uh, and under doctor's orders, and then the doctor said you can start coming back, and then with the whole Delta, whatever writers, um, the doctors said don't go to church, don't go anywhere, don't even leave your house, and so that's where they're at right now. They're staying home. Hmm? I don't believe in that. Well, I mean, everybody's I, got I their. Go, I go places. I just wear a mask. Well, but her doctor doesn't want her to do that. We got so depressed sitting in the house for a year. It's um. It is hard. Everybody's everybody has to go. Everybody's dealing I mean, with that. So just be in prayer for her, because she, yeah, be in prayer for her. Be in prayer for Bud as he continues to heal. Uh, Jamie, do the Vulcans need any help, like getting? Not that they have told me about. If you want to reach out to them and ask, and then let me know if the class can help them in any way. Well, I seen her at the post office before all this. Yeah, because they go out. Yeah, just call me and let yeah. me know if you need us to come low or whatever. So she said, I will, but we're fine for now. So okay. yeah, you might call and see. Um, and then I uh, want everybody to be in prayer for Desiree. Yes. Uh, Desiree is tomorrow, no, the 20th. The 20th is having her gallbladder removed. And uh, so we want to pray for her, pray that the, the surgery goes well and. Um, all that needs to be done there, so be in prayer for her. And then the last couple of things is discipleship too, for anybody that, if you're discipling somebody and you want to get them into discipleship one, I'm sorry, if you're discipling and you want to get them into discipleship two, if you're closing, closing that gap, um, encourage them to go ahead and sign up and they can talk to Brian or Jeremy or whoever's making that call about, you know, like if you're on lesson 16 or 15 and, you know, Maybe the little man. I think we've done that kind of stuff before. And then Bible Institute is the registration is open for Bible Institute. And uh, you know, uh, there's a there's a well, we we talk about Bible Institute being a lot of things, primarily advanced discipleship. But but um, there's a lot of good classes, and um, you don't have to be uh, thinking you're going to go to the mission field before you can take classes at HBI. So just going to keep that in mind. There is a fee for that class, though, because of the expense of of everything that we do in that class. Um, so anyway, those are the things. I think that's everything that I had that I wanted to mention that uh, is not in the bulletin um, that I didn't want to emphasize. So anyway, that's everything, and you got the bulletin, and you got other stuff going on all the time to keep you posted on stuff. So uh, let's turn over to the book of Psalms, chapter 59. We're going to finish out reading that psalm today. And... Um, Pray over that, that pray with that, so that the, the text there, and um, um, let me see here. Your son will not get moved, Judy. They've been, they got moved to Arizona? Not yet. I mean, 
Right. They'll be here the 26th. Okay. All right, well, I don't know what the status is of Katie's uh, uh, brother, uh, Jim. We mentioned him last week. Just keep him in prayer if, if you remember him. So anyway, um, Psalm chapter 59, we'll start reading in verse 10, and we'll read down to the rest of the chapter. Rest of the, the, the chapter. So it says in uh, Psalm 59, verse 10, The God of my, my mercy shall prevent me. God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. Slay them not, lest my people forget Scatter them by thy power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the, for the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may, know, that they may not be, and let them know that God ruleth in Jacob and the ends of the earth, Selah. And at evening let them return, and let them make a noise like a dog and go around about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat and grunge it, uh, and grunge if they be not satisfied. For I will sing of thy power, yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast made, thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O, o my strength, will I sing. For God is my defense and the God of my mercy. It's pretty powerful words. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this passage. Lord, just remind us, Lord, how much you defend us and you care for us and you take care of us. And even as David is writing, Lord, and he's calling out to you for, for a, a defense and a, and a shield and a protection, Lord, we know we can lean on you. And as we mentioned earlier, as we were going through just some announcements, Lord, the people that we're asking for prayer for, Wayne Arney, Lord, just lift him up to you, Lord, that you would just continue to be his defense in the, in, in the needs of his medical situation, all that's going on. Same thing with with um, uh, Desiree, Lord, you would uh, pre prepare the team that's going to do the surgery, Lord, that you would uh, just um, work through them, Lord, that you've trained them, you've given the ability to have that training, and I pray now, Lord, that they would do their job according to your will, and we pray for Desiree and her whole family, Lord, just to be at peace with what goes on in, uh, in the surgery that needs to be done. We pray for Sharon Vulcan, Lord, and um, I know that she desperately wants to be here, uh, but unfortunately, um, she's just not able to be. Lord, I pray that you would minister to her through the body, even as Jamie mentioned, Lord, just reaching out to them and seeing what we could do to help. And I pray that all of us would be able to do that. Pray for Bud Crust, Lord, and he's continued to heal. Thank you for his uh, his service heart, his servant's heart, Lord, to this class. And we praise you for that. Father, we want to, we wanna, as we read this last verse, that I will sing of thy power. I will sing aloud of the mercy in the, of thy mercy in the morning, for thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Lord, help us, help us all to be witnesses of, of who you are and the mercy that comes from you and the fact that you are our defense and you are our refuge in the situations that we find ourselves in, our, in life, whatever that is. Lord, we can find refuge in you. And I praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name.
back here in the Kansas City area. That she might be buried and <clears throat> just pray, Father, that you would be a comfort to them and that you would help those that have been impacted by the loss of Tammy. And we rejoice in the fact that it, it is her gain be with you now. Just pray, Father, for your mercy and grace to continue in this aspect. We give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Lord, just help us to have a learn from the example of David. Even when he is he has trouble all around, he continues to, to sing of your power and your mercy. And Father, we conclude, conclude in prayer. <clears throat> we again just praise you for who you are. Thank you for being our refuge. Thank you for being merciful and graceful in all of our lives. We pray, Father, for those that we that we <clears throat> interact with, Lord, every every uh, day, every week. Lord, that you would help us to sing uh, the praises of who you are, that you are our defense, and you are our mercy. And we just praise and thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I think I got, well, I got in my notes, I got two, but anyway. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in, we're still in this passage um, over there in my Bible. Okay, so last week I mentioned uh, that this is a really complex chapter and it makes it hard to expound the scripture verse by verse by verse by verse like I typically like to do. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we can't go through it linearly in this passage. Um, that means that we need, to, uh, we need to really seek what God is trying to say through Paul uh, because there is a message here, all weaving in and out. In fact, uh, uh, it's actually not just true of this chapter, it's really the true of the whole book. Is when you, when you start to look at things, that we'll get, we won't get into them fully today, but next week when we uh, continue in chapter 3, uh, we'll see that chapter 3 is connected to chapter th 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, I think it is. Uh, all talking very similar to the same type of thing. So he kind of bounces around a lot. Uh, but there's a reason for that, because Paul is trying to express his heart to this church at Corinth. He's trying to trying to paint a picture for them, and uh, he wants to say so much that he has to kind of bounce back and forth. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you've tried to write a letter or try to express a thought, and you kind of jump from one thing, and you come back to it, and you go over here, and you jump back over here. That's kind of how Paul is doing this time. It's not bad. It's what God wanted us to see because I think God wanted us to pay attention to what 2 Corinthians has to say. So um, he's not being confusing here. He's not intentional to be confusing. But if you're not careful, it really is easy to get sideways on what Paul is trying to communicate. And it makes it sometimes, sometimes difficult to expound it and apply it in our lives. Now, he's still responding, as this chapter is, he's still responding to... Um, to the accusations from outsiders of the church. So there have been people that have come into the church. We'll talk more about those people now uh, today. But there's been people that have come into the church, the outsiders of the church, um, that uh, uh, 
he's uh, challenged, they are challenging Paul's ministry as the pastor. They're saying that Paul is inadequate, and he's deceitful, he's ill-equipped to lead, and his doctrine is wrong. They're making a lot of statements here uh, and convincing this church at Corinth, because you know how it is. The people you hang out with have an influence. The people they used to hang out with, they kind of lose their influence because they're not there anymore. Paul understood that. You probably have experienced that as well, too, where whoever you're hanging out with, or maybe your kids, whoever your kids are hanging out with, that who influences them. And you want to pull them away from those people because they're a bad influence. Well, these people in, in the church's life at Corinth, they're bad influences, and they're messing up uh, what, God, what Paul had done and the, the, the foundation that he had laid with the church. So the church started to believe the things that they were being said, told, to the point of demanding a letter of commendation to, to justify who Paul was and what his authority was. Remember, let's just read the first, uh, we'll read down through verse 6, because we're, we're not going to get, well, well, we'll get down to verse 11 today, but I just want to read 1 through 6 to kind of start things off. Paul says, do we again, uh, do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart, and such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. And Paul, is, he's talking about right there at the beginning. He says, do I need a letter from you or to you? Do I need somebody? I mean, don't you know that I'm the one that, that you wouldn't be a Christian today if it wasn't for me? That's kind of like what Paul is saying. That's what he's trying to say. You wouldn't be a Christian if it wasn't for me. I've invested my time and my effort in, in you. It's kind of like when you disciple somebody. And when you disciple or when you've been discipled, the discipler, they kind of have... Um, and I probably had to be careful how I would say this. They kind of have the right to get involved in your life. You know, there's there's people that you're connected to, that you're accountable to uh, in the church. You're accountable to your pastor. You're accountable to the Holy Spirit. You're accountable to uh, your disciple who has invested their life and time in training you, discipling you, and trying to help lay a good, solid foundation in your life. And then if you... So after you finish 16 lessons and they go off and you go off, you kind of separate, right? So it's kind of like Paul. So there's been the training, the discipleship, and then Paul leaves uh, and goes uh, back home because he has to go back to Antioch, uh, his Cindy church, for a while. And in the middle of him being gone, they start hanging out with other people. Now that influence is coming. So that's what happens. When your disciple starts to get into a situation where they're kind of, they're kind of, getting under the influence of people that shouldn't, you have the right as a discipler to come and say, hey, look, we didn't talk about that. We did. That's not how we disciple. That's not what we believe. Let me go back and show you. that. You know, so you kind of have the, uh, the privilege, maybe that's a better word, not right, but privilege of overseeing your disciple and making sure that, especially when they're still young in the Lord, to make sure they're doing the right thing. Now that may sound... Maybe you've never thought about that before, but your disciple ought to be able to come into your life and say, hey, you're, you're, uh, you're veering off course. Or you should have the right to be over the privilege to be able to go to your disciple and say, hey, you're veering off course. That's not how we did this. That's not, that's not what we talked about. We, we covered all of this already, right? In lesson six and lesson eight and lesson 12. Why are you going back like that? 
And so you have the privilege of going back and straightening them out. And that's what Paul's trying to do with this church, and that's what this letter is about, to try to straighten them out. And so, uh, now, I'm not going to get into the whole issue of ordaining a pastor to the church or as a church planter, or, or uh, which that, that did happen when Paul was in chapter Acts chapter 13 when he was sent out. He was ordained, but we're not going to talk about ordaining. That's not the point here. The point, the chapter has made wide ramifications. It has wide ramifications all throughout the whole Bible. I mean, he touches on a lot of different things. We'll see that today. He touches on both on the value of the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. Uh, so to understand what Paul is saying here is to understand the relation between the Old Testament and the New Testament as well as the understanding of the nuances between law and letter. Law and, and um, gospel, I should say. Because if you get this thing wrong, it leads to legalism. And that's where Paul's word that the church is going. That's where the church is actually going towards legalism. So we'll be in chapter 3 at least one more week, maybe two more weeks. just kind of depends on how, how we can break it all down. We'll see where Paul brings the church at Corinth to grasp the value of the role that they have and to learn how to apply all of that in action in ministry. And so what he says, we already read verses 5 and 6, but I want to start with verses 5 and 6. We, we kind of talked about 1, 2, 3, and 4 last week, a little bit of 5 and 6, but I want to start in 5 and 6. This is why I told you we sometimes we have to kind of we, we have to follow Paul's thought more than we have to worry about what verses is, is what. And so in verse 5 and 6, Paul makes it very clear that God has given a task to the church. He's given the Christian a task. And that's what is actually on mine. It's his last will and testament. I don't know if it says that on yours, but that's what it says on the cover of mine. Uh, that document, you know what that document is for? It's an interesting parallel. Because that document is used for the purpose of documenting how I intend to share my kingdom upon my death. I mean, no, I don't have a kingdom necessarily. <laughs> but the things that I have, I'm sharing through the test, new test, this last will and testament, right? I'm sharing that with who? With whoever I put on the list. And some people, you know, in their families, they may, I'm cutting you out of my will. Because they, they don't want to share the division of the Bible. As you all know, the first division of the Bible the major division is called the Old Testament, and the other is the New Testament. But the New Testament did not become, does not become fully effective until after the death of what the Bible calls the testator. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, 16 and 17. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, it says, For where a testament is, there must also be of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are as it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So, you know, if I had, you know, multi-million dollars of my, in my bank account and I wanted to divide that up, my kids were like, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get that, or whoever thinks, you know, my aunts or my uncles or my co-worker, my neighbor, whoever. Yeah. Right? They think, I'm going to get all this money. And like, they don't get anything until I die. And I don't want to die yet. So anyway, um, so Paul is saying in Hebrews, Mark, Luke, and John are in the old, are in what we call the New Testament. They're included. If we had a book that's just the New Testament, it would include those four books. But you know, those books are not actually chronologically. They're not in the old. They're not in the New Testament. They're still in the New Testament. They're still in the Old Testament. 
because the testator hasn't died yet. He always dies at the end of the book, right? The end of the Gospels. Uh, he's, he's crucified. And then the New Testament is now in effect. The Old Testament is no longer in effect. And Jeremiah, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read this passage to you. Um, because there's another word. In fact, in, in the Bible, there's another word. That the word trans, trans, uh, testament is also translated as the word covenant. So you have a New Testament or a New Covenant. And so in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and 32, God writes through Jeremiah, He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, with which my covenant they broke. He's talking about the Old Testament, the old, the old promises and law. Uh, he goes on and says, um, I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I, I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. So Paul's point here at this, in verse 6, at this first statement, is that the church, the point, his point to the church, to Corinth, is that the glory of our opportunity to minister the testament of Christ in the world is bigger than that, uh, than, than, it's bigger than us, but it's not impossible. We're able to do this if we would just pay attention, because he said in verse 5, I believe it is, no, in, in verse 6, that, that passage in verse 6, who hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. God has made you able to pass, to, to do what you need to do. So what is the ministry of the New Testament? Um, if you back up to verse 3 for just a minute, he says, notice that he says in verse 3, for as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, as well as his able ministers. So you're you're the letter of Christ. You Christ wrote on you. He wrote in your heart, as we kind of talked about last week, the, the fleshy table of the heart. He wrote on your heart last week that you were saved. And so it's important for us to observe that Paul was not just speaking to a few key men. He's not writing just like the, the deacons of the church at Corinth. He's writing to the Christians at Corinth. So you can kind of, kind of put it in yourself. He's writing to you. Uh, he is saying that you are able, he's making you an able, you're, you're a Christ's epistle, and you are able ministers of the New Testament. So you've been given a task. Every one of us in this room is on tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Paul says, you, you, your heart has been written on by Christ through my ministry to you. So us, you and I have a task to help Christ right on other people's heart as we minister to them. Now I've told you before, and you probably have heard it from others as well, and you realize it, that people need people generally will only see Christ and they when they see it in you, when they see Christ in you. That's that that written in your heart part. So take note of the word able. And he says in verse six is able. Because all too often the reason that a person resists, this is what people typically say, while they resist following God's given responsibilities, they say they're not able to do that. I'm not able to preach, I'm not able to teach, I'm not able to, to give a devotion, I'm not able. I'm not able. Yeah, but God has given you the ability. He says in verse 6, I have made you able ministers of the New Testament. So he's given you everything you need. Let me just give you some examples. He says, Paul says, there's no excuse on, the, on ability. He's made you the minister for him because God supplies your deficiency. God renders you competent. 
That's what he says in verse 3. He made, he made you competent. He has deemed you competent and able. You have the competency, the capacity, the ability. Remember what he said, what Jesus Christ said in John chapter, four, or John chapter 17, verse 8? John 17, verse 8, he says, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. He's praying. This is Jesus Christ is praying back to God just before he gets arrested in John 17. He says, I have given them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. But what Jesus Christ is saying is, everything that you gave me to say, I have given them to say. So you have the message that Christ had the message of. Not only that, but in Luke chapter 12, in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, he says, And when they bring you into the synagogues and into the magistrates and powers, take ye no thought what, how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you the same hour what ye ought to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You give you the ability. The, you, he makes you able through the Holy Spirit, if you're listening to the Holy Spirit anyway, what to say. In Luke chapter 21, verse 15, he says, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7, I believe it was, when Stephen was preaching. And uh, he preached such a powerful message that they had to stone him to kill him, to get him to shut up. Yeah. Right? But he said, you know what, that, all, that, all, that word came not because of Stephen's innate ability to grasp concepts. It was just because the Holy Spirit moved through him and he just let the Holy Spirit speak. So what is the definition of ministry? I, you know, sometimes I've had, I've had people challenge me on these kind of things before. So let me give you two defin definitions. As a minister, uh, you know, the people would look at me or Brian and say, you're a minister, you know, you, you're, you're ordained and so on, you're a minister. I'm not a minister in, in the sense that, that uh, like, a, like a Catholic church would be, you know, they're, they're ministers, that, that's a title. But a minister, the role, the, the role of minister is defined as attending or serving. It's a word that's sometimes translated as a deacon, which means to serve. That's what the minister is. The role of minister is to serve others. What are you serving? You're serving up the Word of God. Okay, so that's minister. But what about ministry? I, I, would, I would call ministry the act. So you have the minister, the role, ministry, the act. You are the minister. You, that's your role, to serve up uh, the Word of God. The ministry... Is the, is the effort to bring to light the knowledge of the glory of God. Every ministry in this church has one purpose. And we say it a different way for different ministries, but it's basically the same thing. And that is to bring to light the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what we're trying to do. And Paul goes on later on in this chapter, and he talks a lot about glory, and I hope we get to that all today, because I want to. Get, make it to that part at least. So to be to be an able minister, according to Paul, is to be an example of the epistle or the letter of Christ delivered to those who need such an introduction as demanded of Paul in verse 1. Remember, Paul in verse 1 was saying, hey, do I need a letter? Do I need a letter? And some people that you're now, he's talking to the church and they should know better. But what if you're talking to a lost person? They say, well, by what authority are you telling me these things? I have the letter of Christ that says I can tell you these things. That is my authority. That is that is the right, the, the privilege that I have because God has made me able. He has written on my heart. I want him to write on your heart. That is, that is the ability 
that we have. So, so Paul saying, hey, do I need a letter? And of course, he didn't need a letter to, to them, but sometimes we need a letter to, to witness to other people. And that letter is Christ. Because you are an epistle of Christ. You are the letter of Christ. And Christ has sent you out. He made you able. He considered you competent. He says, go out and, and share the letter. What letter? The words that I have given them in John chapter 17. He said, I gave them all the words. They don't have to give anything else. You know what? When we, when we share the gospel with somebody, we don't have to share anything else but what is in the Bible. That's all we need to share. Is, now, we may have to explain it and use words that aren't in the Bible to explain concepts and stuff. I understand that. But all we need to share to get saved is what the Bible says. Why? Because that's what Christ said. I've given you these words. I've given them these words so they can go out and they're able now to go out and do what everything that, is, that it needs to be done. That's what Paul's trying to say. He says, don't you understand? You have a task. Your task is not to go back to where these people, these Judaizers, are wanting to take you. And we'll get to that point here in just a minute. So the Old Testament ministry was in two parts. If you think about the Old Testament, what is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is about obedience and law. Conforming to the law, be obedient to the law, and what happens? You live. If you don't, you ultimately will die. Today, our ministering efforts are not of the letter of the law. We're not ministering the letter of the law here, are we? We're ministering the grace of Christ. We're not trying to take anybody back to the Old Testament. When we... That's what some people want to do when somebody says they get saved. They want to, they think that probably maybe I need to go back and do what they did in the Old Testament. And they don't. Um, we have complete understanding of the writing on our heart and the letter of the same thing being fulfilled by Christ, which is a message ministered to others. And we have all of this capacity because of what verse 5 and verse 6 says. We're sufficient in God. He alone gives us the ability. And we're made able because all we need to do is to do what the will of God says. In John uh, chapter 6, verse 40, this is the will of him that sent me. This is the will of him that what? That sent me. You've been sent. Every one of us have been sent. Maybe it's just to, to talk to a relative. Maybe it's to talk to a coworker. Maybe it's to go across the ocean and plant a church. I don't know where, where everybody's being sent, but we are being sent. I don't know if you think about it that way or not, but God has sent you. He said in John chapter 6, verse 40, this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone who seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, so there's, that's ministry. And when Paul says you, you're, you're able ministers of the New Testament, that's kind of what we're, we're at. But then he also says in verse 6 and then in verse 7, he says something else. Let me read verse 7. I'll read verse 6 and 7 together. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for this letter killeth but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death written and engraven, and engraven in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look, behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not, verse 8, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? It's an interesting thing. So there's two tables. We talked about that last week a little bit. There's two tablets, right? There's the tablet, fleshy tablet of your heart, the, the stony tablet of the Old Testament. And we can't lose sight that the people who had followed Paul into Corinth were Judaizers. And this is an interesting thing about these Judaizers. I call them Judaizers. That's what the Bible calls them, Judaizers. Uh, and uh, their desire, they insisted that to be truly saved, Gentiles, this would be you guys, to be truly saved, 
What did you have to do? You had to become a Jew. You had to conform yourself to the Jewish law. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, after Paul's first missionary journey, he had to go to Jerusalem and have a council meeting and sit down with these people. Uh, James was there, the pastor of the church. Peter was there. Paul was there. Barnabas was there. And there's a couple other people. I can't remember all of who was all there. But they had a conversation. What do we do with these Gentiles now that they're getting saved? Oh my gosh, we can't allow Gentiles to get saved. That's what they were thinking. In Acts 15, 5, there arose a certain, up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, that would be the Judaizer people, who believed, saying that it is needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. That's what you do with Gentiles. You circumcise them, make them Jew, and you make them follow the law. That's what, that's what they were wanting to do. Peter ran into the same movement to force Gentiles to become Jew after he saw with his own eyes that God had accepted the Gentiles. Remember when Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, how he preached to Cornelius, Cornelius and his house got saved, and Peter's like, what, what just happened? I, I, I mean, these are Gentiles. I'm not even supposed to be here. He wasn't supposed to be inside their house, but he did it anyway. Finally, Paul was arrested in Acts chapter 22 for supposedly violating Jewish law. Paul was accused of taking Jews into the temple in Acts chapter 22. That's when they finally arrested him. And, uh, and that it went, went all down from there. So the Judaizers had a problem in the way that Paul was ministering by not taking people back to the Old Testament. That was their problem with Paul. Paul would get people saved and they say, now you live a life of grace and mercy. And the Judaizers were like, well, you got to take them back to the law. you got to get them circumcised. Remember, he wouldn't, who was it? Was it Titus or Timothy? I was getting confused. Titus, he wouldn't get, uh, no, Timothy, he wouldn't, get, he wouldn't force Timothy to get, to get circumcised. Because Tim, Titus, uh, Timothy's father was a Gentile. He said, you don't need to get, you don't need to get circumcised. If, if, if Paul was taking people back to the Old Testament, he would have made Timothy get circumcised, just like he did Titus. And so anyway, they, their problem was that he was, he was not ministering the way they thought he should. Um, and what Paul is saying is the Judaizers had a problem with the way Paul was ministering by not taking people back to the Old Testament where the law was written on stone, not in the heart. That There was the letter of the law. No spirit was allowed. Just go back to the law, they said. So the reason for their efforts to return Gentiles to the law was, you ever wonder why they, they wanted to do this? Because they had a disdain for Gentiles. They had a disdain for Gentiles. Gentiles were ceremoniously impure for many reasons, such as handling dead things, eating unclean food, not washing, not participating in the sacrifices, and a whole lot of other things that would be sin in the Old Testament that the Gentiles did. And not only that, they did not want the filth of the Gentiles rubbing off on them and, and causing the Jew to be impure. And Paul saw their demand for a letter of commendation as though they wanted to be taken back to the letter of the law. And so that's why he wrote verse 1, and so Paul said, uh, so this would be like a person getting saved at HBF, then seeking to implement religious rituals that another denomination would demand for acceptance of salvation or righteousness. So if somebody gets saved in this church, so there's many denominations that do this already. They call themselves Christian. I'm a, we're a Christian denomination. We follow Christ, but they don't follow Christ. Uh, they follow the law. They follow the rituals, the, 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 the uh, sacraments, the covenants, whatever they call them. Give you a couple of examples. You probably already think about these already, but Catholics, uh, you know, you got to go back. To, you got to do the sacraments, all that stuff. Uh, Mormon churches like that. Um, 
the Jehovah Witnesses like that. Seventh-day Adventists is like that. Why They call Seventh-day Adventists. Why? Because they want, to, they want to worship on the Sabbath, which they consider the seventh day, which it is. Sabbath is but we don't, what? we don't honor the Sabbath anymore. Um, those are the predominant. There's probably others. Even the two ordinances that we obey, baptism and Lord's Supper, are not required for your salvation. But in another denomination, they may be as well as other tasks. So some churches, you, you can't, you're not saved until you get baptized. You, you're not saved until you've taken the Lord's Supper. You, you've got to, you know, have, you got to exhibit gifts or spiritual capabilities or whatever. And so Paul said, that's not, that's not what this time. And at the end of verse seven, back at the end of verse seven, he says. He begins a very biblical reason why they can't go back to the letter of law. So now he's going to explain to the church why you can't go back to the letter. You can't go back to the Old Testament. This is why. Remember in Exodus, in Mount Sinai, uh, God, had, or God brought Israel to Mount Sinai in chapter 19, verse 8. Uh, he said, uh, it's your choice, people. Israel, it's your choice. Obey me and get blessing. Disobey me or choose not to obey me. That's fine. Go off and live and die. And he made the choice. And what they said in Acts chapter in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, that they would do whatever the Lord spoke, they would do. God, you speak, we'll obey. And they found out very quickly that they had just committed themselves to, a, to the letter of the law. And if they can't keep the law, it's death. That's why Paul said it, uh, that uh, the, the stony tables uh, lead to death. And that sounds good at first when they did that. They found out that they had no ability to keep the law, and the law was a death sentence to them. That's how you know you're dead. Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 7, by the way. He talked about that I was alive until the law once. And then once the law came, I died. He said, now I realize I'm in violation. Before he got, that's what we talk about little children, right? We say children at an age of accountability when you finally realize you're accountable for your actions and you're accountable to God. And Paul says, uh-oh, now I, now I know the law and the law killed me because I'm dead because of, and I need Christ in order to be alive. The only way I can do it, the New Testament. And so, um, so God, Jesus, or I'm sorry, God, the lesson that God will, wants to teach all of us dispensationally is that later on he's going to reveal his son Jesus Christ. So dispensation, the Old Testament, finally coming into dispensation, New Testament, I know that's, that's a broad category. There's seven dispensations um, that most people teach anyway. Uh, but uh, God wants to bring in a dispensational picture here about Christ. Uh, he's going to reveal his son Christ who could keep the law yet at the same time take on the sin of man that they would be received, they re, that they could receive the glorified writing on their heart. If it wasn't for Christ keeping the law, and it wasn't for Christ taking your sin on, you would never have been able to have that spirit right on your heart. You're saved. You're sealed. Uh, so there are differences in the two tables, and this is see this is this is a completely. When you read all of this stuff and you say, "What is Paul talking about?" It's easy to get like, "I'm not sure where he's at." I'm just going to keep on reading. <clears throat> You know, but there's this is important stuff because you are able ministers and you need to be able to to hopefully minister this kind of thing to other people as well. And so anyway, I won't put a lot of pressure on you, but I just did, I think. So anyway, um, 
The differences in the two tables that Paul talked about. We covered this last week, but let me be remind let me remind you quickly of the description of these tables. In verse three, Paul compares the law written on tables of stone with letters of commendation and letters of the fleshy tables of the heart. The fleshy tables of the heart is the ultimate motivation that we see in verses four and five. So let's go back and read verses four and five. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. So this writing does not take place in the area that most of us, I mean, I talked about this last week. It's not taking place in the area of what we would think about our emotions, where, oh, my heart is so emotionally motivated right now. It's not, the, it's, not the, it's not that part of your heart. It's actually the place where God begins to work a work of trans, transformation in your heart. When God transforms you, that's where he's writing this at. Our trust in God through Christ and our sufficiency for righteousness is of God alone. We know that. And our sanctification is in Christ by the Spirit of God. That's what he said. If you flipped over to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, that's why it kind of, just everything jumps around here. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and some were such, and such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now think about this. When we're talking about the heart being written on with ink, now ink degrades, I think anyway, over time, but written in the Spirit of God, which changes forever. Now I'm reminding me of that verse, Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom you were trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that you had believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I was kind of thinking about in the context of, uh, of that, uh, that last, will and New Te- last will and testament that I had drawn up for me. I had to sign it to seal it, to make it official, to make it a real document. God sealed my heart. He sealed your heart when you got saved. And I always, I always kind of just imagined like, a, like a, a seal, you know, he dripped melted wax on there and put his ring on there and called it that seal. And that's true, and, that, and that's how we teach it in Discipleship 1 use that as an illustration anyway. I don't know if you do what I do. But at the same time, the signing of his name by the Spirit of God on my heart is the seal. He sealed it by his signature. Now, yeah, he, he probably sealed it in concept like that, you know, sealing a letter with the, rub, with the, melted, the melted, glue, melted wax and stuff. Uh, but when he did that, and then he put his hand on it, he wrote in that he wrote in that ink. Maybe I don't know. I'm just using an illustration. He wrote in that wax his name, and said, "I'm sealed to the day of redemption." That's what the, that's that heart uh, written in in fleshy tables of the heart. He clearly puts any letter of commendation from another person below the letter of God's word. That's what Paul does. Uh, And at the same time, the tables of stone, which reminds us of the Ten Commandments, remind us that the effort to keep the law was bound up in man's own self-confidence, which gives us no hope at all for drawing others to trust Christ. If everything is resting on what you can do to stay saved, how are you going to get somebody else saved? Because if what you do is what you... Are you going to do it for me too so I can get saved? Are you going to do that? No, you're not, because you can't. If Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, Paul, God writes, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put in, within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And this new heart 
It produces us a desire to please God, according to Psalm chapter 40, verse 8. He says, I delight to do thy will, O God. Yes, or yea, thy law is within my heart. And then verses 8 to 11, and we'll try to wrap up in the little time we have left here. Verses 8 to 11, what I would call the glory of God. Paul, Paul, is, Paul made, a, made a point of, he actually compared, uh, there's one thing that he, Paul agrees with when it comes to agreeing with the Judaizers. And that was that what was the, the letter written in stone and the letter written in the heart, they're both glorious. They're just different. So the glory of God. The word glory is used 12 times in chapter 3 alone and over 38 times in the letter. It's a word that means a favorable human opinion. That's what glory means. A favorable human opinion with a sense of reputation, praise, honor, splendor, light, perfection, and so on. It's a, it's your, it's a glo- what you think is glory is human opinion, but of course human glory is vain. Human glory is shifty. Human glory is based on error or lies, and it is unworthy. But the glory of God is absolutely true and absolutely unchangeless. God's opinion of anything marks its truest value. What God thinks about it is what it is. What God thinks is his opinion is so much more than our opinion. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, And lo, a voice came from heaven. Remember what he said? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That's the value of Christ. He didn't say that about you, but he did say it about Christ. Not only in Matthew three seventeen, but also in Matthew seventeen five, he said, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him." Moses asked God. Remember, when back in Exodus again, in Exodus thirty three verses eighteen and nineteen, Moses asked God a very unique question, very important question, the same question that we should be asking God all the time. He says, show me thy glory. God, show me. He's up in the mountain. And God said, okay, I'll show you my glory, but let me put you in the cleft of the rock and put my hand over that, and I will pass by you, and you will see my backside. But what he saw was God's glory. What did he see? It says in verse um, 18 and 19 that he saw, uh, he said, I will show you my mercy. See how to do Put my glasses on because I can't find my place. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy to, um, on whom I will show mercy. So he, he saw grace and he saw mercy. That's what, that's, that is the glory of God. God showed Mer- Moses both grace and mercy because that's an example of God's glory. And where do we get grace and mercy? Through Christ. We get grace and mercy from God through Christ. And so Christ is God's glory. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, which is next chapter over. For God, will, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you see Christ, you're seeing God's glory. I think that's an awesome statement. The... the The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul even said of Jesus that he is where we put our hope, right? He said, where do you put your hope at? Um, I was reading an article this morning. It had nothing to do with the Bible. And uh, they were talking about uh, bad faith, dealing with cultural things and bad faith. And I'm interested, well, what is good faith? And and they didn't really explain what good faith was. But let me just, where's your hope? Where is your hope? He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Colossians 1, 27, 
to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, who is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's where we see, that's where we see glory. So verses 7 to 11, we'll wrap up here. We're almost, we're almost out of time. But let me read, um, start, we'll read the whole passage, 7 to 11. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which, which glory is done away, how should the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? That word rather um, is an interesting word. For if the ministration of the condemnation of be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious hath no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. Verse 11, and that's where we'll end. For if, for if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. You see how he's comparing both of them glorious. One is glorious, the other's glorious. But one's better, more glorious. One's glory glorious. It's, it's like, you know. Anyway, I think you get the, hope you get the point. So Paul begins in verse 7, admitting that there is a glory to behold in the ministration of death engraved in stone. It was so glorious it, this, this is how glorious that was. And when Moses went up to the mountain, you remember what happened in Exodus 34? He went up to the mountain, and he came back down from the mountain. His face shone so brightly that he had to cover his face. They were seeing the glory of God radiating off of his face. Uh, the people couldn't behold it. Yet the glory was done away, according to verse 7. That what he said? Verse 7. Behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. He says in verse 7 that if this ministration to death is glorious, then how should the ministration of spirit be rather glorious, more glorious? That word rather, it ended. Now, we don't talk like that very much. I'd rather go here. That's a, kind of a, an opinion or a choice, right? Rather go here or there. But that's not what he's talking about here. That word rather indicates a preference over another, such that it is too that it, such that it is too significant extent better. It's a significantly better thing than what the first was. So, according to verse nine, the spiritual ministry is rather significantly preferred. In fact, it is to say what well, I could say that it is much more exceeding in glory. The word more in verse. Look at verse nine. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. That word much more, that's the same word as rather. Much better. It's more important. It's, it's that much more valuable. One thing I can't find, and I'll finish up with this, this little point here. One thing I cannot find in a, is a place in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit is involved in the ministry of the law in the Old Testament like it is in the New the, old, the Spirit is there. I mean, we know the Spirit of God is moving in the Old Testament all the time. But at the same time, the Spirit of God is not involved in the ministry of the law. You do it or don't. Live or die. Then in verses 10 and 11, Paul says this. He wraps all of this up and he says how much... He, said, he kind of puts a bow around everything by saying the ministration of the Spirit is much more then that which remains is just that much better. So he says, verse 10, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if 
that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. And I'll finish with this verse and we'll be done. Romans chapter 8, verse 4, reminding this, this, this concept reminding this verse, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled, fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so let me just kind of give you a couple of concluding comments. What do you glory in? Too many of us glory in things that are personal for us, but they don't reflect the glory of God. What is you? What do you glory in? In, in the in, in the ministry of the Spirit or in the ministry of the law? Which where is your glory? In the ministry of the Spirit or in the ministry of the law? Are you motivated to leave up to lead others to Christ? How did I write this? Are you motivated to leave, lead others to Christ? You are able, no matter who you are. You are able. Are you able? Yes, you are able. Do you see yourself as able? Do you see yourself as surrendering to God? Let Him use you according to His will, as Paul did. All right, that's everything. Let's pray, and we'll be out of here. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the glory of God. Thank you for Christ, who who uh, bear bear our sins on the cross, that we might have a uh, a new heart given to us, that we might be able to serve you. You've given us the ability. You consider us competent and capable. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would always please you. Uh, we talk about that all the time, Lord, about being a sweet savor to you, a, please, a pleasure as we serve you. And I pray, Father, that we all are at all times. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm? Okay, I hope that was vertically correct and everybody was able to watch that. I'm going to